All right, Psalm chapter 8. Next week, we will look at a wisdom psalm from Psalm chapter 62. Today we'll be in Psalm 8. This, this is a psalm of praise. There are hints at a messianic aspect to this, as you'll see as we go. But just to start, we want to, we want to read it together today. So, in fact, uh, would you all stand as we read? If you're able to stand, would you stand as, as I read Psalm 8 this morning? I'm reading from the ESV. You can follow along in your Bible. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, may we see this to be true. How majestic is your name. How incredible you are as a result of understanding your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So before we get into any of the contrasting things, what's what's the same in this psalm? The first and the last verses, right? They're identical. They're the same thing. Um, there's a purpose in that they they fit together well i think with what we'll talk about in between them that's coming uh this morning but if you know anything about some of the verses that we just read you'll remember that this psalm 8 specifically the middle portion of psalm 8 is quoted by at least three new testament characters the writer of hebrews the apostle paul and maybe most notably, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 8. And so it's important that we understand this. We will, hopefully, by the time we're done, understand this better. Let's just kind of work through verse by verse, and I'll help expound some things along the way. Uh, I'm going to point to these places where it's uh, taught and referenced and quoted in those three New Testament places, but I'm not going to really exegete those passages necessarily, um, but just bring them up and kind of help them see how they fit together to help our understanding of Psalm 8, okay? Because I think it, it does help us in, in doing that. So let me point out in the very first verse, the one that's identical to verse 9 as well, he says, this is David. He says, O Lord, our Lord. Now, in most of our English translations, the word Lord, even though it's back to back, is different, right? If you look down at your, at your Bible, they're different. One is all caps and one is just a capital L with lowercase O-R-D. There's a reason for that. We've, we have talked about this before, but let me just remind us that in the Hebrew, the translation of the word Lord is Yahweh. That's the all caps. This is the personal name of God. It's really the, the name that God gave himself when he said, I am who I am. 
Yahweh, Lord, all caps. That's what we see there. The other one is just more of a common word for master, Lord, ruler, king, that kind of thing. So if we want to kind of help us understand these first and ninth verse today, it would basically be saying this, O Yahweh, my master, how majestic, how excellent, how glorious, how mighty is your name in all the earth. Okay, the king of all is not just the king of all, he's my king. And he is David's king, and so he is, David is specifying that in how he writes this. And really, this is the main point of the psalm. How majestic is your name in all the earth. All the things that are in between verse 1 and 9 point to that truth. They help illustrate and help us understand how he can be so majestic how his name can be so glorious. And so I think there's some fun, interesting contrasts that now David starts just even at the end of verse 1. He says, you have set your glory above the heavens. And then at the beginning of verse 2, he says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. This is unusual. The most high Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the most high is in the most exalted place that David could think of. Not just in the heavens, but what does he say? Above the heavens. Higher than he could even see or imagine. This is where God is. He couldn't be lifted up anymore. No one is greater. No one is stronger than that God. No one is wiser than that God. And then verse 2, David slides in this polar opposite. Babies. Right, No one is wiser and stronger than God, but that's not a baby, is it? A baby is kind of the polar opposite of who God is. Babies are not strong. Babies are weak. Babies aren't full of wisdom that we know of in this life. But God is. They are small and God is unmeasurable. Babies are completely dependent on other people for life. God is not that way. So the question is, David, what are you bringing babies into the discussion for? Like, why even do that? What do they have to do with the majesty of God? Let's read verse 2 again. He says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What an unusual thing for David to say that babies can do. It's, it's pretty incredible. Those who would oppose God, those are his, the foes, the enemy, the avenger. Those who would oppose God are silenced by what comes out of babies' mouths. And I don't mean spit up. That's an incredible thought. Does David mean then, that battles and wars are won by the cooing of a baby or by the gibberish of an infant? I, not necessarily. I think what this is is another example of the sh- strangeness, and I don't mean anything negative by that, the strangeness, the uniqueness of the kingdom of God. Jesus established this obviously when he came, but things in God's kingdom, are very different from the kingdoms of this world, right? 
upside down almost. Totally strange, totally unique. And the truth is, if God wanted to, he could just blink a person out of existence, right? I mean, he spoke everything into existence, so he's got the power to do these things. He could discharge legions of angels at his beck and call to accomplish his will in an instant. But he chooses to win battles other ways. Like with singing, as we've talked about. With blowing trumpets. With using a laughably undersized army. God's kingdom, God's plan, God's wisdom doesn't match the wisdom of the world. God does all of those things to win battles. Sometimes he uses the sound of a child, the cries of a baby, the weakness of children. That's what overcomes the enemy here, David is saying. So when we expect or when the Jews expected a sword-wielding Savior to come riding into Jerusalem on a white horse with a battle cry to defeat their enemies, what does God give? He gives Jesus, a lowly person, thought nothing of riding in on the back of a lowly donkey. That's what he gave him. God sends a meek and a lowly man riding on a beast of burden that was not thought highly of in anyone's eyes. And we know that Jesus did that on purpose, right? If you go back in Matthew 21 and 20 and where he's setting all of this story up, he tells his disciples to go and to to ask about people where they can find this donkey. And so he does it with intentionality, Jesus does. It would not only fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, but it would also be a visual display of what we've just been talking about, the upside-downness of the kingdom of God. The Savior's not coming in wielding a sword on the back of a white horse. He's coming in on a donkey. (laughs) Think about this scene. Let's go back in our minds, and if you want to turn there and just kind of look through, it's Matthew 21. But Jesus comes into town riding on a donkey through the streets of Jerusalem, and what do the people do in response? You can raise your hand or just shout it out. Okay, so they start, they start singing and yelling. They're saying, hallelujah, hosanna. What, what do they do physically? Besides saying, they go to the trees that are nearby and they cut off branches and they lay them down on the road. They take their coats off and they lay them down on the road so that Jesus, who's on a donkey, can pass over. Okay? They, with conviction, are then singing, hosanna, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they're, they're chanting this. They're saying this. Now, notice something that Jesus does not do. He doesn't stop them. That plays into what happens next. So where does Jesus go? As he's going through the streets, he goes straight to the temple, doesn't he? He goes straight to the temple. And we, that's this is the passage where he goes in and he doesn't start asking a bunch of questions about what people are doing there. He sees what's happening and he starts flipping tables over and throwing chairs because they're not using the house of God in the way that it should be used. It's a holy place and they were using it to steal and to rob and to deceive. 
And so he cleanses the temple, and then immediately after that, he begins healing people. The lame come to him, and they can walk again. The blind come, and they can see again. And the people who said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, they're still there. They're seeing this. There's, I'm sure, a crowd at the temple, and this was quite the scene there. And it was witnessed by everybody, which would include the children. They saw Jesus riding on a donkey just like their parents did. They might have had the task of going and running and cutting a tree limb to come and put down on the road. They heard their parents shouting, Hosanna, which, ironically enough, the root meaning of the word Hosanna means salvation. They saw Jesus heal the blind men, the lame people, and then they do what their parents did. They start singing, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They start doing what mom and dad did. You can draw a lot of parallels from that, but we're going to move on. So the children saw it and participated in it. And this helps us see what's going on in Psalm 8 in the sense that the children, especially in Jesus' day at that time, the children knew who Jesus was. Maybe before their parents actually were convinced of it, they knew who Jesus was. They were calling him the son of David. This was the title of the Messiah who they were waiting for. They were hailing him as the long-awaited Savior. And guess what it did? It infuriated the chief priests and the scribes. And they were angry in their hardness of heart. They missed the salvation, the literal salvation that was right there in front of them. They heard the people's cries and they saw the, the blind people see again and the lame people walk again. They saw it just like the kids saw it. But it didn't affect the scribes and the Pharisees, the chief priests, the same way that it did the kids, did it? No, they didn't praise the name of Jesus. It made them angry. And they thought that it should have made Jesus angry too. So they go to Jesus. You can see this in Matthew 21. They go to and they and they basically just say, Jesus, we know you can hear what those kids are saying about you. Why aren't you stopping them? Why aren't you telling them not to? You're Obviously, you're not the Messiah. So why are you letting them go on and on? Jesus in response to the chief priests and the scribes, guess where he goes in Scripture? He quotes Psalm 8. He, he, he quotes it, but he quotes it a little bit differently. He quotes verse 2 specifically. He quotes it a little bit differently. He quotes the Greek version, which says prepared praise. And that's why this looks a little different. So if you look in Matthew 21, where Jesus quotes Psalm 8, he quotes it a little bit differently. He says that they have prepared praise instead of the Hebrew version, which says established strength, which is what we see directly in Psalm 8. And I think that there's a simple reason for this. It's that he was explaining in Matthew 21, he was explaining how this all happens, how infants or children's children establish strength. It's through their praise. That's, that's how this all works. This is how the enemies of God are silenced, believe it or not, through the praises of children. And this is exactly what happened, isn't it? If you keep going in Matthew 21, there's no more theological discussion with the elite people there. 
There is no long lecture even from Jesus as to why they were right. Certainly no long explanation from the chief priests or scribes as to why they were wrong. They have nothing else to say. The praise of the children has silenced them. Guess what? Psalm 8 has come true in Matthew 21. The praise of the children silenced the enemies of God. So you might say that the weak things of the world have silenced the strong things. You might even say that the lowly things have set straight the lofty things. And if you don't say that, someone already has. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, you're familiar with this verse, I would think. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As strange and as upside down as it kind of seems to us, God has chosen to use simple and seemingly weak things to defeat his foes. And he does it all throughout Scripture. Psalm 8 verse 2 illustrates this very unusual truth that God wins with weakness. Now we think of the word weakness as an extremely negative thing. No man wants to be weak. No woman wants to be weak. There is a contrast, as you can see, I hope it's obvious now in verses 1 and 2, that causes us just to marvel at the wisdom and majesty of God. That God would use the weak things to defeat the strong things. But David continues with another comparison in verses 3 through 8 here. He marvels at the majesty of God in creation, specifically of the heavens, specifically in comparison to you and me, to humankind, to people. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Son of man that you would care for him. It's been a while, but I've finger painted before. Have you ever, have you ever finger painted before? Who has finger painted within the last year? Raise your hand. This will really tell me a lot about you. Okay. All the homeschool moms have their hands up. Uh, <laughs> uh, my finger paintings are not good. If this is a surprise to you, I'm sorry. Uh, they did not turn out well. They did not look as I had in my head. Okay. Um, and the truth of it is, even if I got a bunch of brushes and not use my fingers, my paintings aren't going to come out that good. I don't have a whole lot of creativity in me. And it doesn't matter the best artists in the world. You can give them any number of brushes and paint colors. They can never totally capture a sunset, can they? Some people come close. They can't capture the beauty of a night sky when the stars are visible. A painting can't do justice to standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You just can't do it. Pictures even can't do justice to it. But God, just finger painting with, his, with just his fingers has done it all. Has put those stars into place and the moon into place 
and everything else where he set them. And so David rightly understands that all of the heavens, including everything under it, are his. They belong to God. They're his heavens. They belong to him because he made them. And when David looks up at these things, he can't help but feel the same way that we feel when we look up at the night sky on a starry night. Little. We feel so little. Compared to the self-existent and all-powerful God, we are so small. And David says this. He's like, "Who? what is man? That you would come and visit us, that you are mindful of him. Here's some astrology. Astronomy, I always get the two confused. I know one's bad and one's good, but uh, study of the heavens and the stars and space and all those things. Here's some some facts. I've been told that with just the naked eye, you could go out tonight if it's clear, and you could see around 5,000 stars. I don't know who's counted them. That would be a really hard job, but they say you can count maybe 5,000 stars. If you have a telescope with kind of like a four-inch mirror kind of glass on it, you could see maybe 2 million stars. That's quite an increase. If you go to an observatory that has, you know, a huge telescope, you could maybe see a billion stars. I don't even know how many zeros the number billion has. But that's not all the stars that are in our universe. In fact, if you could travel at the speed of light which is 186,000 miles per second, right? If you could travel at the speed of light, guess how long it would take you to get to the edge of the universe? Paul, I'm looking at you, man. It's, an, it's, a, it's a huge number, 46.5 billion light years. None of us would make it that long. We would need a lot of snacks on the way. We would not, 46 and, a half, 46 and a half billion light years to get from here, from earth to the edge of the universe. And God made them with his fingers. We are so small when compared to the universe around us. Every person that looks at the night sky says the same thing. If the difference between God and babies was obvious in Greatness, strength, and wisdom. The difference between God and all of mankind, you and me, is just as obvious. David paints that picture here. And and so David asks that question that's right there on the tip of our tongues as well. He says, what is mortal man that you are mindful of him? And mindful could also be translated to come and visit. That you might That you would come and visit us. The son of man, or just mankind, the race of men, the son of man, that you would care for him, in verse 4 it says. Why would God care about us at all? Why would he come to visit us? Why would he care for us? Despite the glaring contrast between God and mankind, the wonder of the incarnation and the beauty of the gospel is that God does care for us. God does remember us. In fact, look at verse 5. It tells us that God made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings. Now there's a couple of fine details to work out really quick here. Stick with me. The words, the phrase heavenly beings is most likely referring to angels, uh, that kind of thing, heavenly beings in that sense, not God himself, though the word used here in the Hebrew is Elohim, 
which is usually translated the most high God. I say that I, I think that it's just heavenly beings, specifically because of how the author of Hebrews handles this text when he quotes it, as we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, the second thing to kind of work out real quick is when he says, God made mankind, him, a little lower than the heavenly beings. So both lower in present nearness to God, lower in present glory, certainly, and lower in present honor. All of those things are true. And yet, look at verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, all also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Are mankind and God on the same level? Mm-mm. No, absolutely not. Not even close. And one look at the universe proves it, that we're not even close. And yet, despite all of this, God not only cares for mankind, he has visited mankind and he has given mankind dominion over the works of his hands, David says here. So in a very real but not yet fully seen way, God has crowned mankind with glory and honor in that way. We, we remember that this was bestowed upon Adam in the garden, right? Everything was good that God had made, and he gave Adam the responsibility of naming the animals, have dominion over them, he says in chapter 2 as well. For Adam, and then consequently all of mankind, God has put these things under his feet. And this is a, this is a, a strange but wonderful passage. It takes us back to the history that we see in, in Adam and his story. It reveals what's true today about God's people, but it also draws our attention to the truths of things that are yet to come, that we haven't seen fully fulfilled. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 8 in 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 15, I don't know why I'm having trouble saying 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is the longest chapter, specifically of Paul's, about resurrection. Maybe the longest chapter in the Bible about resurrection. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, uses it in a very similar way. Both authors show that this promise of dominion is now only incompletely fulfilled among men. Yet, it will be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The ultimate man, that second Adam, and not only that, but one day it will also be completely fulfilled in his resurrected followers. We've sang about being resurrected with Christ a couple of times this morning. That is something that believers look forward to. And so if this is true, and we believe that it is based on God's word, what a tragedy it is when we are captured and held bondage, held in bondage by the things of this world. If we were created to go beyond just these things, what a tragedy is it is when we are held in bondage by them. American theologian James Montgomery Boyce said this, although made in God's image and ordained to become increasingly like the God to whom they look, men and women have turned their backs on God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and duty, they actually look downward to the beasts and so become increasingly like them. 
Not in the sense of evolution or anything like that, but in a sense of depravity. And I, there's very few who would look around and deny that's the case today. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 points out something that we all know is true. It's another obvious truth that we seem, fallen man seems so weak and incapable of dominion over his own thoughts and desires, much less over the things that God has created, the works of his hands. Right? We can't even, we can't even have dominion over our own bodies. What does it mean that we have dominion over all things? It's been put under our feet. This seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Well, that realization that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, that we kind of see and understand, is not yet fulfilled. It is still in process. But Hebrews, I think, properly directs our attention, even when we don't see it in ourselves or the guys and girls around us. We do see it. We see it in Jesus. We see it in Jesus Christ. If you're in Hebrews chapter 2, look at verse 8. Specifically, the second part of verse 8 says, At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. Well, that, that's how we feel, right? Right now, in the present time, we don't see it this way. That's our reality. We don't have dominion as we ought to. We don't see everything in subjection to him. But we do see something else. Keep going. Hebrews 2 verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, that's who he's talking about, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Guys, where Adam failed and where you and I fail, Jesus is victorious. He has Victory. He has dominion over everything. It is under his feet. His dominion has no end. And we see that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess to him as Lord. So when David in Psalm 8 thought about the incredible gift and responsibility that God had given to mankind as far as dominion goes, even though it was yet unfulfilled, it made him praise the Lord all over again. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even though it's unfulfilled, even though it's not yet how it ought to be, David turns to praise and worship. To quote James Boyce again, he says, The most striking feature of Psalms 8 is its description of man and his place in the created order. But the psalm does not begin by talking about man. It begins with a celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. That's where it begins. And that's where it ends. David understood that the position of man in creation says far more about the glory of God than anything it says about the glory of man, right? John Piper says, So what we are left with when this psalm is over is a victory over God's foes that are not yet complete, that is not yet complete, and a dominion for man over creation that is not yet realized. Therefore, it's pointing to a time yet to come and a work of God yet to be done that will defeat his enemies and bring all of creation under the dominion of human beings who treasure his majesty above everything else. God defeats his enemies with the weakness of children. 
And he rules his world with the weakness of mankind. And we look at this, and we're not only confused, but it irritates us, doesn't it? If we're honest, it does, because this is not how it ought to be, we think. Could it be that God knows better? So where do we clearly see the majesty of God? Well, I would certainly argue that we see it in the heavens. We see it on those starry nights. We see it standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. We see it in the face of our children. But where do we clearly see the majesty of God? In the face of his son, Jesus Christ. That's really where we see the majesty of God. And so we can say like David, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your son in all the earth. Think about it. The death of Christ looked like weakness, right? The Messiah being crucified on a cross, just like some common criminal of the day, seemed foolish, didn't it? Certainly it did to the disciples. They all ran and hid. They didn't understand. They didn't see it for what it was. And yet, this is how God chose to change the world forever. It's through weakness. Quoted again, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But he continues, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it's written, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For you, believer, Jesus is your righteousness, this verse says. He is your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption because he has become the wisdom of God made known in the world. For all who believe, that's our promise. He is our strength, not our own. He is our wisdom, certainly not our own. For those who don't know Jesus, who don't believe, this whole concept seems backwards and foolish. It seems strange that the path to wisdom and strength and honor is through weakness. It doesn't compute. But the truth is, the gospel says that through humbling yourself before Jesus, the victorious king, and by giving your best and your worst over to him to redeem and make you a new person who rejoices in the unique and surpassing majesty of God, that's what he does. That's what he continues to do to transform dead sinners who have no understanding of the concepts of God into people that love him and recognize his majesty and praise him for it. May we as God's church, as God's people, not just recognize the majesty of God, but respond by faith, in praise, and in worship. Brothers and sisters, we look around, we look inside, and we know that things aren't yet what they're supposed to be. God is still fulfilling his promises to us, and he does it 
every day because his promises are new every day. Let's pray. Lord, this is a wonderful truth that we, we run to. When we have lost a loved one, when we have a broken relationship, when, Lord, we have blown it and we don't know how to pick up the pieces and move on, Lord, we have this hope that even in our weakness, you are strong. In fact, you use our weakness to show how strong you are, Lord. And this is, as Psalm 8 has reminded us, this is not about us. This psalm starts and ends with you and your majesty, Lord. And yet, in between, you have given us responsibility, dominion. Lord, may we who know you pursue doing that well and right and biblically. Lord, I pray for those who may not know you, who are listening this morning. Lord, I pray that they would they would not reject these truths because they fail to make common sense, Lord, but they would investigate them more and see how true it really is, how true you really are, how wonderful a change you make in a person's life who humbles themselves, repents, and puts their faith completely in Jesus Christ and what he has done, not in their own works. Lord, by your grace, we will do this. Lord, for your glory, we will do this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.